Section 38 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 The Catholic Kings by H. Butler Clark, Part 4. When Charles returned to Spain, July 1522, he was received, as he states, with much humility and reverence. But he came accompanied by a foreign guard, and determined to punish ruthlessly. At Palencia, the regents laid before him their proposals for amnesty. Not only were these rejected, but pardons granted in his name were withdrawn. On All Saints' Day at Valladolid, he mounted a dais and declared that he would be justified in punishing all who had shared in the late rebellion, the municipalities, by deprivation of their liberties, and individuals by confiscation and death. Nevertheless, he promised to pardon all save three hundred. This proscription, in the form of an amnesty, was mercilessly carried out. The list contained the names of many members of noble families, the supplications of relatives who had fought on the royalist side availed nothing, and the sum brought into the treasury by confiscation amounted to two million ducats. Many executions followed, and even as late as 1528, the Cortes still prayed for mercy on fugitives. The revolt of the comuneros originated in indignation against particular acts of misgovernment and hatred of foreigners, rather than in any meditated scheme for winning popular liberties. It has been represented as an attempt to resist the encroachments of the crown, but was really an attempt to limit its traditional privileges. Under the weak kings of the 15th century, the Castilian Cortes had neglected to secure the abolition of the antiquated forms which represented the king as everywhere paramount. Under strong kings, the strict letter of the law was enforced. Ferdinand and Isabel were despots, with the consent of their subjects. Charles was strong enough to disregard the popular will. The movement never spread beyond Castile. The Andalusians offered to suppress it, but their aid was not required. It was crushed by Castilian troops. So soon as its democratic character became pronounced, it was opposed by the nobles, whose aid or acquiescence was essential to its success. It failed through local jealousy, respect for tradition, and lack of a leader and of a plan. It was not openly directed against the crown. The junta denied the accusation of disloyalty, asserting that, quote, never did Spain breed disobedience save in her nobles, nor loyalty save in her commons, end quote, January 1521. The failure of the movement so depressed the popular cause that until the beginning of the 19th century, the Spanish commons but rarely again raised up their heads beneath the scepter of their absolute kings. While the rising of the comuneros stirred Castile into a ferment, a distinct and much more violent rebellion was in progress in Valencia. 
This was entirely social in character. The city population was composed of restless and turbulent artisans, descendants of the adventurers who had settled here when the land was won back from the Saracens. The country population was chiefly made up of Saracen peasants, vassals of the nobles. Between nobles and people stood the rich burgesses, despised by the former and envied by the latter. The industry of the Saracens, stimulated by a heavy burden of taxation, pressed hard on the Christians. In the autumn of 1519, while most of the magistrates were absent on account of the plague, the 48 trade guilds of the city took up arms to resist an expected attack of the Barbary pirates. The contemplation of their own strength gave rise to a feeling of independence among the commons. They began to claim a larger share in the government and appointed a junta of 13 members to rule over them. The nobles sought to interfere, but the guilds formed a brotherhood, Hermania, to resist them and petitioned Charles to prevent the dispersion of their forces. On receipt of a favorable reply, the movement spread to such an alarming degree that the nobles called upon the king to come in person and check the disorder. A commission was sent to examine the situation, and in accordance with its report, the Hermania was ordered to lay down its arms. By this concession, Charles thought to persuade the Valencian nobles to take the oath of allegiance and to vote supply without insisting on his presence at their Cortes. On their refusal, he again changed his policy, favoring the Hermania and sending Adrian of Utrecht to inquire into its grievances, February 1520. In view of their danger, the nobles, when Charles was on the point of quitting Spain, consented to receive his oath by deputy, and in answer to their appeal, he sent Diego de Mendoza, a nobleman of haughty temper, to restore order, April 1520. After an interval of quiet, riots broke out again. In June, the city was left in the hands of the Hermania by the flight of the governor. Shortly afterwards, he was driven from Jativa to Denia, while all the cities of the kingdom of Valencia, with the exception of Morella, rose against their magistrates and appointed juntas like that of the mother city. The movement spread as far as the Balearic Islands and now began to show itself in its true light. The grievances originally put forward were that the people were deprived of their rightful share in the government, that taxes were excessive, and that justice was badly administered. But when the rabble gained the upper hand, instead of attempting political reforms, they plundered the houses of the nobles and called upon them to produce the titles by which they held their estates. This attack on property alienated the Burgesses, who henceforth sided with the nobles, and the action of the Hermania became more violent and fanatical than before. Despairing of help from the Regency, the nobles armed their vessels. The army of the Hermania marched out against them, but was crushingly defeated at Oropesa and Almenara, June and July 1521. 
The governor, however, was again routed at Gandia and driven to seek refuge at Peniscola. Meanwhile, owing to the frantic excesses of the populace, which now openly avowed its intention of exterminating nobles and infidels, the moderate party was increasing. At its head was the Marquis of Zenete, a nobleman of well-known benevolence and impartiality. Negotiating between the opposing factions, he succeeded in obtaining the submission of the city and bringing back the governor. But the more violent members of the Hermania were still encamped at Hativa. Having imprudently put himself into their power, he was treacherously imprisoned, but escaped to Valencia, rallied all the moderate citizens, seized and executed the ringleaders of the mob, and after a fierce fight, remained master of the city. Hativa and a few outlying towns were not subdued until after Charles' return. In March 1523, the queen dowager, Germain, was sent as regent to punish the guilty. The pardons granted in return for submission were revoked. A ruthless proscription and many executions followed. Thousands fled, and the guilds were ruined by heavy fines. Like the comuneros, the agermanados never ceased to proclaim their loyalty. The two revolts were simultaneous and were, at all events, directed against the same enemy. But cooperation was never attempted. Local jealousy and traditional hatred were still strong. The Castilian, in the eyes of a Valencian, was, nay, is, to this day, a foreigner. The rebellion of the Comuneros had hardly been suppressed when Navarre was invaded by Henri d'Albret with the connivance of Francis I. Charles had engaged to restore Navarre to the house of Albret, but negotiations had failed to bring about fulfillment or confirmation of the promise. Henri d'Albret entered into communication with the Comuneros with a view to combined action, but his army came too late. It was commanded with more courage than discretion by a scion of the exiled family, André de Foy d'Asparos, or L'Espar. The garrison of Navarre had been greatly weakened by the withdrawal of troops to crush the revolt in Castile. Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port was easily captured. The fortifications of Pamplona were not yet sufficiently strong to offer more than a feeble resistance. Henri d'Albret was welcomed by his partisans within the kingdom, and the whole of Navarre was overrun. Elated by his easy conquest, Asparos crossed the frontier of Castile and laid siege to Logroño. The Duke of Nagera, viceroy of Navarre, had hurried south to obtain assistance from the regents. Logroño made a heroic defense while he marched to its relief with the troops lately victorious at Villalar. Meanwhile, Sangoesa had been recaptured in the rear of the French, who now retired towards Pamplona, fearing to have their retreat cut off. They were overtaken by the Spanish army, two leagues from the city. The garrison which they had left for its defense was unable to join them. Driven to bay, Asparos ordered an immediate attack while the Spaniards were resting after their long march. 
he was utterly defeated and taken prisoner at Noain, June 1521. The Albres never again attempted to win back their kingdom by force of arms. Charles returned to Spain, 1522, no longer a diffident and delicate young man, passive in the hands of his advisers. His views had broadened, and his temper was haughty and autocratic. Spain was now part of a larger whole. The accident of the possessions of the Aragonese crown in Italy, the election to the empire, and the inheritance of the House of Burgundy checked and warped her development as an African and Atlantic power, but foreign courtiers were no longer allowed to treat her as a conquered country. The emperor learnt to know and respect the Spaniards. Spanish statesmen sat in his council. Spanish soldiers formed the mainstay of his power abroad. The overthrow of the comuneros had compelled their fear and respect. Association in worldwide schemes of universal monarchy and championship of the church endeared him to them and roused them from their natural lethargy and absorption in provincial and class differences. Military glory turned away attention from the burden and sufferings of the land and increased the national contempt for all professions save that of arms. The middle class, which under the Catholic kings was struggling into existence, almost disappeared. But Charles attempted to found his worldwide power on submission, and not on political, social, and economic well-being. Spain was indeed formally united, and political unity was based on religious unity, as Isabel had intended. But the vigorous provincial and municipal life, checked by harsh centralization, became a source of weakness instead of a reserve of strength. A memorable, intellectual, literary, and artistic development accompanied the political expansion and the growth of military glory. The striking originality of the new generation contrasts with the effete imitation that sufficed for its predecessor. The predominance of the Castilian dialect was already secured, but even in the 15th century, poets sought models in Provençal, Galegan, and Italian. Ausius March, who died in 1466, the most notable among them, wrote in his native Lemusin. Literature was an exotic, cultivated at court. Hardly a poem of the hundreds collected into the cancioneros of Baena, Stuniga, and Hernando del Castillo, published in 1511, possesses more than historical interest. The frivolity, artificiality, and disorder of the reigns of John II and Henry IV were reflected by their poets and their tragedy by the chronicles probably, too, by ballads now modernized beyond recognition. The introduction of printing coincides with the accession of the Catholic kings, and the next half-century produced translations of the Latin and Italian classics in abundance. Though the revival of learning influenced Spain, it bore no fruit there till later. The scholars who brought the new learning to the peninsula were mostly foreigners or Spaniards trained abroad. Peter Martyr of Anguera, the two brothers, Geraldino 
and Marineus Siculus were Italians. Arias Barbosa, a Portuguese, taught Greek by the side of Fernán Núñez de Guzmán, a Spanish nobleman, but Spain produced no Hellenists of note. Luis Vives, the humanist, tutor to William de Croix, the boy Archbishop of Toledo, and to Mary of England, was Spanish only by the accident of his birth. Antonio de Nebrija, or Lebrija, the most distinguished native scholar of his age, was educated at Bologna, though his teaching was, like his Latin dictionary, 1492, and Spanish and Latin grammars, addressed to his fellow countrymen. His daughter, Francisca, was one of a company of learned women who carried their teaching even to the universities and the court. Ferdinand himself was all but illiterate, but Isabel had a taste for learning. After her accession, she acquired some knowledge of Latin. So carefully were her children educated that Queen Juana could make impromptu speeches in the learned tongue. Isabel's schemes of reform included the education of the nobility. By her command, Peter Martyr opened a school at court. His success exceeded his hopes, and learning became so fashionable that the sons of grandees lectured at the universities. The church, though impoverished, aided the cause with splendid benefactions. Schools were founded at Toledo, 1490. The decayed Studium Generale of Valencia was revived, 1500. Barcelona followed suit, 1507. The noble college of Santa Cruz at Valladolid was finished in 1492. That of Santiago at Salamanca, some 30 years later. Both were founded by archbishops of Toledo. As a patron of learning, no less than as a statesman, Ximénez de Cisneros led the way. In 1508, he founded the University of Alcalá, Complutum, alma mater of so many famous Spaniards with professorial chairs of grammar, philosophy, and medicine. Its chief purpose, however, was the study of the Holy Scriptures, and its first fruits were the earliest polyglot Bible, of which the first part was published in 1514. The Semitic text is the work of converted Jews. A Greek cooperated with Spanish scholars on the Latin and Greek texts. The level of education was raised, and foundations were laid from which the golden age of Spanish literature could take its rise. But the notable books of the period owe little or nothing to classical or foreign influence. Play-acting did not become popular till the time of Lope de Rueda, about 1550, and even then its methods were rude and simple. But the secular drama emerged from the religious early in the century. In the Annus Mirabilis, 1492, the first drama was publicly acted by a regular company. The representations of Juan del Encina, 1468 to 1534, the comedies of Torres de Najaro, published in 1517, and those of Gil Vicente, 1470 to 1534, are much more than mere dialogues without action, like the one in which Princess Isabel 
had taken the part of a muse on a birthday of her brother Alfonso, who died in 1468. Gil Vicente was a Portuguese, and the other two lived long in Italy, but although there the drama was already established, the Spaniards took their own line. Encina calls his simple plays eclogues. Torres de Najaro cites Horace for method and awkwardly divides drama into fact, noticia, and fiction, fantasia. But these classical reminiscences are merely superficial. Figures of everyday life were put upon the stage, and dialogue was cast in Castilian octosyllabic verse instead of in foreign hendeca syllables. A book that may be read for its own sake as well as for its historical importance is the tragic comedy of Calixto and Melibia, published in 1499, generally known as La Celestina. The authorship of the first part is disputed, but probably the whole is the work of Fernando de Rojas. La Celestina is a story told throughout in dialogue and divided into 22 acts, its length is only one of the circumstances that unfitted for acting, but its vivacious and natural dialogue furnished a model for the drama. Its hero and heroine are the typical lady and gallant, the stock romantic characters of the comedy of cloak and sword, the primitive Romeo and Juliet. Celestina, witch and go-between with her train of thieving lackeys, low women and bullies, more than foreshadows the realistic and comic characters of the drama and novel. The rogues, picaros, and buffoons, graciosos, who in later days were to play so prominent a part. The book was translated into many tongues. Its influence at home and abroad is incalculable. Another masterpiece, solitary in its kind, and contrasted in its noble earnestness with the artificiality of the other poems of its author and his generation, is the Coplas de Manrique, verses by Jorge de Manrique on the death of his father, which occurred in 1476, two years before his own. Longfellow has done all that a translator can do for this unsurpassed elegy, but half its beauty is lost with the language in which it is written. Its stately pageant of mourning and final resignation realize Christian chivalry as poets have dreamed of it, and the solemn knell of the majestic verse is worthy of the noblest daughter of Latin. At the beginning of the 16th century, the knightly chronicle degenerated into the romance of chivalry. Amadis of Gaul, the first and best of the kind, perhaps originated in a French fabliau. More than one allusion to it is found in Spanish writers before it was published, 1508, by Garcia Ordóñez de Montalvo as a translation from the Portuguese. The success produced many imitations and continuations dealing with exploits of the innumerable lineage of Amadis. These heroes of the romances of chivalry are impossible beings, living in a shadowy and impossible world, the first of them exhausted the capability of the species. The others surpass it only in absurdity, while the abuse of the supernatural makes their stories tame and uninteresting. 
A Cervantes was hardly needed to dispel this fantastic dream of a debased chivalry. The advance from chronicle to history due to the revival of learning was not made in Spain till the middle of the 16th century. The story of the reign of the Catholic kings down to 1492 was written by their official chronicler, Hernando del Pulgar, in the form of annals. Despite some graphic descriptions and florid speeches, it is in general heavy and arid, lacking in the simple dignity of its kind, and inferior to the Claros Varones de Castilla, a gallery of contemporary portraits drawn with skill and energy by the same pen. Andres Bernaldez, curate of Los Palacios, expanded his memoirs into a history of his time. He is at his best when he forgets the gravity of his subject and is content to gossip about the events of which he was an eyewitness. Nebrija condensed Pulgar's chronicle. Peter Martyr left a collection of letters on contemporary events, a rich but untrustworthy and puzzling mine of information. These books, like the De Rebus Hispaniae of Marineus Siculus, are Latin exercises upon historical subjects. Spain has never lacked learned men, but except perhaps in theology, the Spaniards have never been a learned nation. The foreigners who came with Charles V were struck by the ignorance and contempt of letters prevalent in Spain, as well as by the semi-savagery of the bulk of its people. The revival of learning could not at once produce fruit on soil so scorched and seamed by centuries of war. Moreover, the richest fruits of Spanish genius are indigenous. Inspiration for the noblest poetry of Spain was found in the Bible and in her own history, rather than in Latin and Italian writers. Her novel and drama sprang from her own rough but teeming soil. With the exception of painting, which was still in its infancy, the arts had already reached the fullest expression to which they have at any time attained in this country. In architecture, in sculpture, in pottery, in gold, silver and ironwork, and in embroidery, Spain never improved upon the skill of the Saracens and the masterpieces of the 14th and 15th centuries. The influences which molded her art are to be found partly in race, partly in climate, and partly in history. Possessing great power of adaptation, she set her mark upon all that she produced. In the northern and central regions, design and initiative in architecture are mostly French, but the influence of the Saracens leavens this northern style and informs it with richer beauty, the songs and shrines being equally tinged with the coloring of northern piety and oriental fancy. Introduced at first as a mere accessory in vestments and jewelry, and in Moorish caskets which guarded the relics of saints, little by little this more gorgeous ornamentation permeated the whole building. It was still a Christian cathedral, yet the lavishness with which the minor arts were used in decoration produced a result that is not to be found elsewhere and is known as the plateresque or silversmith's style. Typical examples are the Puerta del Perdón of Seville Cathedral 
the horseshoe arch of a mosque overlaid with Christian emblem and decoration, 1519, and in less mixed form, San Marcos of Leon, 1514. To this period belong some of the choicest works of expiring Gothic and dawning Renaissance building. The Church of San Juan de los Reyos at Toledo perpetuates the memory of the Battle of Toro. Cathedrals were planned for Salamanca, Segovia, Plasencia, and Granada, but the most valuable work of the age was the completion and decoration of the splendid designs of an earlier time at Burgos, at Toledo, and at Seville. To it belong also the church set down in the midst of the great mosque of Cordova and the splendid but incongruous palace of Charles V on the Alhambra Hill. Sculpture in Spain is usually associated with religious architecture. It is often in bolder relief and of more intense expression than elsewhere, and attains its greatest perfection in altarpieces and sepulchral monuments. Such are the marvels of marble and wood created by Philip de Vigarni or de Bologna about 1500 to 43, Alonso de Beruguet, a Spanish pupil of Michelangelo about 1520, and Damien Forment of Valencia about 1511 to 32, the tombs of King Juan II in the Cartuja de Miraflores, that of the Infante Don Juan at Avila, those of Inigo de Mendoza and his wife at Burgos, and the kneeling statue of Padilla. They are, it must be confessed, delicate and gorgeous rather than grand. Marble and alabaster are treated like metal and lace. Beauty is sought in details and no longer in grand and simple lines. To the Spanish Saracens belongs the invention of a dwelling combining with convenience and suitability to their climate a high degree of beauty. Nowhere else has a fortress been made a home of strength and beauty like the Alhambra, mainly 14th century, and the other Alcazars of Spain. The semi-oriental domestic architecture adopted by the Christians of Andalusia is seen at its best in the so-called Casa de Pilatos at Seville, 1521. Here there is no need to guard against the weight of snow, no cold to be kept out, no smoke to blacken, so the roof becomes a terrace. The arch is reared in fairy lightness, the glaze and color of brilliant tiles replace the heavy wainscot and arras. Stucco, molded into geometrical designs and harmoniously colored, makes up for the lack of pictures and for the scantiness of the furniture. The lonja, or silk exchange at Valencia, 1482, is an example, not without parallel, of the successful wedding of late Gothic design to Saracen detail of window, ajimez, and decoration. As a subject race, the Saracens continued almost to monopolize the more delicate industrial arts. Theirs are the pottery of metallic sheen and the exquisite designs of lace and filigree, damascening, and inlaying, which, with the rich silks and velvets, 
testify to their skill as handicraftsmen and to their exquisite taste in form and color. End of section 38. Recording by Linda Johnson.